generation is an evil generation. It asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And see, something greater than Jonah is here. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may have suspected something like this when I served for five months here at St. Stephen's, but I write sermons at the last minute. <laughs> and the problem with that is that John Burris asked me long before the last minute what gospel lesson I wanted read this evening. And... Uh, being very busy with other things, I said, well, whatever the gospel reading for the day is, we'll just put in here. And so we got, it asks for a sign, this evil, and <laughs> evil generation, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. But actually a pretty cool line coming right after that. Um, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. So it's like very judgmental. And condemning, but that's pretty cool, Queen of the South. <laughs> I'm gonna um, come back in a few minutes to the Queen of the South because she is very cool. Um, and so is Jonah, the prophet, who you might be a little bit more familiar with. Um, and tell you about um, a theory that I've just kind of been working on within my own spiritual life lately. Um, and the theory is that transformation, transformation, you can put a spiritual in front of that if you want to, spiritual transformation always has something to do with an inversion of power or an exchange of power. And I'm pretty sure that there's been some famous theologian here and there who've either come up with the same theory and put it much better than I just did, um, or some equally amazing theologian who's completely disproved it. <laughs> um, but I've been, I've been working on this. And I, let me give you a couple of examples of just things that have come up for me this week. Um, on Sunday, I drove two hours to a little town called Tallahassee where there's an Episcopal church of about 25 people called Epiphany. And I wanted to know a little bit about their church before I drove this two hours to go and, and preach to them. Um, and their website's really beautiful and really simple. Um, and they tell a story about something that happened at their beans and rice ministry, which is a, a food pantry. Um, and they uh, tell the story about a Latino man who spoke nothing but Spanish who came and got this big, I guess he got his beans and rice, and then he got a big uh, paper bag full of other kinds of dry goods. Um, and as he was leaving, he pulled out from that bag a can of green English peas and uh, kind of held them up to the, the people that were working from this church and kind of with like the universal 
hand gesture of like, what the heck is this? <laughs> and they were trying to, in kind of sign language, explain what peas are and how they're already cooked. You don't have to do anything but pop the lid. And after they got about knee deep into this explanation, he was like, I'm just kidding with you. <laughs>
I said, you know, Demetra, I really need you, I need you to know something. We're not a coffee shop anymore. Now, Demetri is really smart. I don't know if I said that earlier. Demetri is really smart. You can't BS Demetri. And so I could see all these thoughts running through his head. Probably thoughts that he decided to keep to himself, like, oh, I bet they ran out of money. Or, oh, I bet that drug addict relapsed. Or, I don't know, oh, I bet they stopped preaching the gospel or something. I can see all those options of how to react running through his head. And so he said, why did you close the coffee shop? And I told him exactly what I told you, which is the truth. Uh, we decided we needed to be more of a church and less of a business. Which isn't BS, but it kind of sounds like and again, I see all these thoughts kind of running through his head, and he's deciding what to say. And finally, he said, I think that's a really good decision for you. You made the right decision. And in that moment, there was this exchange of power. Previously, I had had almost all the power. Because I had the coffee, I had the money, I had the bus tokens, I had the... I had the church, I had the house, I had the education, I got the master's degree, I'm the priest. And in that moment, I was vulnerable, and Dimitri could have said anything that he wanted to hurt my feelings, and he did not. So just to state my theory again, for you to mull over this week, I wonder if all spiritual transformation has at its core an exchange of power. It's a little bit like the story of um, Jesus out in the wilderness that we read last Sunday. It's a moment where Satan comes to Jesus in a very vulnerable point in his life where he's hungry, thirsty, famished, alone in the middle of the desert where Satan's got all the power. And Jesus turns that on his head. So, back to the Queen of the South. We'll see what we can make with her and this exchange of power and idea of transformation that comes. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, if you kind of read the whole thing all in one sitting, you'll realize that um, over the course of the Gospel, uh, he starts off real calm and sweet, and he's born in the manger, and um, the shepherds come to see him, and he's baptized, and he goes out into the wilderness, and um, he, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and it all sort of, it doesn't go downhill, but it starts, starts to get wound more, more and more tightly um, until he's spewing out the stuff about how this generation is an evil and wicked generation and asks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And in fact, even the queen of the south herself will rise up at the judgment of the people of this generation. And there was an author in the early 1960s. Um, I brought the book with me because I would forget his name otherwise, and I want you to see the cover. Um, an author named 
Gunter Gutenborg, a German Lutheran pastor uh, who was doing what a whole lot of German Lutheran pastors were doing in the late 50s and early 60s, um, which was uh, wondering why God let the atrocities of World War II happen. If you see the, the cover of this book, it's, um, they picked a really weird picture, but it's actually the, the tail of some big whale. It's like what's happened to Jonah, right? And so he, um, he wrote a play, The Sign of Jonah, a play in nine scenes. Um, and what happens in this play is it's about five or six actors, characters, and when out of character, these five or six people are supposed to be the survivors of World War II. So one survived um, internment in Auschwitz. One uh, survived um, the, the siege at Stalingrad. Um, you know, an, another survived the, the bombings of London. And they somehow all happen to be in the same room uh, with a man who's a judge. Um, and they decide to stage this trial. Because they, they say the only way that we can have any peace with what's happened um, to us 15 years ago is to decide who's guilty. Who did this? Who's responsible? Who's to blame? And I guess they remember this little passage um, from the Gospel of Luke. And they decide to call up Jonah and the Queen of the South to come and testify. And... Um, so that's sort of the premise of the book, and they start talking about all these atrocities and um, bearing witness and testifying to the things that they've seen and the things that they have been through, trying to decide who was it. Was it the Nazi soldiers? Was it the German and Japanese people who let it all happen? Was it Hitler? Was it this sort of queen of the South kind of figure who had all the power and all the authority and could order these terrible things to happen and these bombs to be dropped? And as they're getting more and more wound up, they come to a decision. No, it wasn't the Nazis. No, it wasn't the Japanese people. No, it wasn't the innocent people who suffered. No, it wasn't the Queen of the South. Who's got the ultimate power and authority? Who's ultimately responsible? Who's omnipotent, omniscient? Who should have known better? God should have known better. Who's guilty? Who's responsible? God? So they conclude the play by putting God on trial. Everybody is in complete and unanimous agreement. It is all God's fault. God should have known better. God should have done something. God should have stopped it. And then the play ends with the sentencing of God. Because they're perfectly clear what kind of punishment God deserves. God deserves to be born out in the middle of nowhere to a vulnerable and unwed, never heard of mother. God deserves to have no home to lay his head. God deserves to be born in a time and a place under an oppressive and military regime. God deserves to have an all-nighter where he prays to God and never gets heard, never gets responded to. God deserves to die alone in the most painful way possible and to lose an only child. 
the punishment that God deserves. That's what they have all been through, and that's what they are determined to put God through as well. So being faithful people who I hope uh, are familiar enough with the story of the gospel to know what happens next or to know why that's a powerful ending for a play called The Sign of Jonah, I invite you to wonder, at the end of a story like that, who's got the power? Is it the people who put God on trial? Is it God, ultimately, who's already served God's sentence that's got the power, who took the power back? And is there a way that God ultimately shows us immense and incredible and powerful love through an exchange of power that allows us to grapple with this evil generation and the things that evil generations of people do to one another, sometimes in the name of God? Is it the love of God that allows us to grapple with those things in ways where sometimes we take for ourselves the power to be able to say, God, you should have done something. And I wonder why not. I invite you to continue wondering that with me. What is this love that God shows us? And what must this God be like? And how does God invite us to share power with others? To take up the power that God invites us into, but then ultimately to join God in always choosing love over that power. Amen. <laughs>